Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15 and following. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, in every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything in the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills everything in every way. Lord, as we open up your word this morning, we open up our lives to you. We open up our ears to hear things that you might want to say. We open up our eyes to see ourselves in the world maybe a little bit differently. And we open up our lives to encounter you this morning. So I pray that your spirit would be felt. We acknowledge his presence and we're grateful for you. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Good morning. You can have a seat. Thank you, worship team, for, for jamming. Uh, whether you're here in person or online or listening to the podcast, it is uh, good to see you. Happy Super Bowl Sunday. I hope there's lots of good food in front of you yet this afternoon. Uh, if we have not met before, by chance, I think I know all of you. My name's Tyler. I'm one of the only pastors not named Kelsey. I'm also one of the shortest pastors, so that will narrow it down for you. And I'm excited to continue on in our series uh, called Courage in Action. We kicked this off last week. But back to Ephesians. Uh, I, I read a passage out of the book of Ephesians. We kicked off a new series last week again that's titled uh, Courage in Action. And if you missed last Sunday, I'd recommend listening to the podcast. It gives us a foundation for where we're going to be over the next many weeks together. Uh, definitely worth your time. But quick recap for you, in case, in case you missed it, a little bit of background. This is a letter written by Paul, and we're going to be working through this really line by line over the, last, over the next many weeks together. Um, the background, the story of how Paul came to be in Ephesus can be found in Acts 19. Ephesus was a, a big city. It was the epicenter of worship for, for many Greek and Roman gods in the ancient Near East, and Paul spent uh, about two years in this city, and while he was there, he had this really effective ministry. Lots of people came to follow Jesus, but he's now writing this letter years later while he had been imp imprisoned by the Romans, and there's kind of this movement through the letter. The first half, Paul explores the story of the gospel, how all of history kind of came to a climax in Jesus, in his work, in his resurrection on the cross. And out of this, the church is now this, this new community of these multi-ethnic people coming together in Christ. And in the second half of the letter, Paul transitions into how that gospel story meets itself in your story. 
as you live life here in this world, in your community, in your neighborhood, in your family. In chapter one, last week, it kicked off with this beautiful, long, run-on sentence. It's this, this Jewish-style poem that, that Scott read through last week. Again, listen to the podcast. And in this poem, uh, Paul had been praising God for all the amazing things that he had done in Jesus. The fact that throughout history, God had been looking to bless this covenant people, but now in Christ, anyone and everyone is now adopted in and grafted into this family. And the impetus throughout is on Christ's work on the cross. His death, his resurrection, which provides a grace for us that opens up an entirely new way of being human as we live, live life in this world. And that leads us into our, our passage today in which Paul offers a prayer. He prays uh, that these followers of Jesus wouldn't just know things about Jesus, but that they would actually personally experience the power of the gospel in their lives. And secondly, that they would be energized by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And out of that comes identity and courage. Sounds a little dense. It is kind of a dense passage. I want to simplify this for you, break it down for you today. Uh, But our focus this morning is that we are called not only to know, but to fully experience the power of the gospel as we know God better. Um, There's this idea, this this notion of, of having a concept about something versus actually understanding something in reality. Maybe knowing that something or that some place or that some person exists out there versus actually holding something in your hand, seeing that thing, going to that place, or having a relationship with someone. There's kind of a difference there, right? Uh, I work full-time in tech. If that doesn't work out for me, I'm I'm thinking about maybe being a travel agent. I don't even know if those exist (laughs) anymore. Uh, Maybe like a travel influencer if I was actually actually cool or cared about Instagram. Um, But when I go on vacation, I like to plan everything out, like almost to a a maniacal level. I don't get to travel a whole lot, so I like to plan everything out almost moment by moment, hour by hour, to maximize my time in paradise. Uh, I did this before Cassie and I went to Kauai a few years back, which is really the closest thing to heaven, this side of history. And before we went, I, I scoured the internet. I read way too many reviews. I talked to people that had been there before. I tried to really map out every single day down to the hour of the things we'd see, the places we'd go, the the food that we would eat. I knew that we would have happy hour Mai Tais at Lava Lava Beach Club. (laughs) Sheps, you you know that place. I knew that we would see Hanalei Bay at sunset. I knew that we would see the Nepali coast by boat. We'd eat poke at Pono Market. Free advice there. Hope you're taking notes today. And even though I I knew all of this ahead of time, I had this head knowledge, this concept in my head, I knew everything about Kauai, I thought, I really had yet to experience this amazing place. It wasn't until I, I really spent a week there, truly experienced it, that I knew this place on a deeper level. There was now a head knowledge that was also met by this felt experience in this amazing place. And in the same way, we are called not only to know God, but fully experience the power of his gospel as we know him better. Let's get into the text. Verse 15, For this reason, 
Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. This verse kicks off with that phrase, for this reason. For this reason shows up a few different times in this letter, and it's a cue for us to look back at what, what Paul just wrote, to really reflect on it and realize what he was trying to communicate. And out of it comes this new passage. And we learned last week Paul had just offered praise and admiration to God for all the gifts of grace that he has lavished upon his people, that he has blessed us in the heavenly realms, that he's adopted us, that he's redeemed us, that he's called us. And it's out of that, for this reason, that Paul prays. He, he understands the implications of the gospel that leads him to pray for these people. An interesting detail here, even though Paul helped kind of start these churches in and around Ephesus, it appears that he wasn't there when many of these people came to know Jesus. He says, ever since I heard about your faith. So he's hearing about the faith that they're living out and the love that they're demonstrating and showing. He's hearing that these people had marked change in their life, even though he was gone. And he's kind of writing like a proud father proud of all the good things uh, happening in these people. And really, I think simple application for us here is that we should thank God for the good things that he's doing in other people. If you ever have a moment where you're just not really sure what to say, what to pray for, this is, a, I think, a really easy starting point. It's easy for us to get self-absorbed in our prayer, at least for me. But we should be thanking God for the good things that he's doing in other people. I wonder if if in an instant you could make all of your prayers come true, what would be different about the world? Would only your life be different? Or would you see blessing happening for other people? Would you see the world around you actually be changed? I, I think about that sometimes. Two important words that Paul uses here are, are faith and love. And in a lot of his writings, there's kind of this triad, faith, hope, and love. It's known as the, the Pauline triad. And these themes are, are kind of interconnected and related to one another as, as he writes, depending on the context and the situation. Uh, in Colossians 1, we read, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all God's people the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven. Here, faith and love kind of spring out of this future hope that they have in Christ's inheritance. Faith and love work their way out of this grounding of hope. In 1 Corinthians 12, it says, And now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Love's coming out of faith and hope as it focuses on other people. So Paul, he's heard about these people's faith that's now working out in love. It's seen, it's obvious, it's overt. There's, there's change in these people's lives. And it's this that reminds Paul to give thanks and pray for them. Again, we should thank God for the good things he's doing in other people. Verse 17 now. Uh, this is where we find the priority of Paul's prayer. And this is really important. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. 
This is the priority of his prayer. He is praying that these people would know God better and better, deeper and deeper. Again, simple and direct application for us. We are to know God better. And we should state that if if these people are Christians, and it sounds like they are, they already know God. But Paul seems to be alluding to this progressive and this deeper knowledge of God. Maybe uh, put another way, do you know God deeper this year, better this year in 2022 than you did in 2021? Or do you know God deeper and better coming out of the season that you're in than you did going into it? Don't feel guilt or shame. That's just a kind of rhetorical question. If I'm honest, I've come out of seasons in life on different ends of that spectrum. But why does Paul pray for this specifically? Why is this the priority? I think it's because there is a tendency for us to know a lot about God, like all of those things that we read on the first half of chapter 1, without knowing him personally, without experiencing him firsthand. And Paul's thinking this is not a sustainable model for us. See, it is possible to know a lot about him without really knowing him. And for Paul, that's like worst-case scenario. It's like missing out on the best thing. And I think the same is true with just about any other relationship that we have in life. Take marriage, for example. Nothing is hidden in marriage. I know just about everything there is to know about Cassie, unless she's a spy when she's not at home. But I know her her favorite foods. I know her Starbucks order. I know her favorite books and shows, her favorite memories, her college GPA, which was higher than mine. I... (laughs) I know what time she goes to bed, when she wakes up. I know how much much taxes she owes. We share that stat. We share our net worth. I know her shoe size. I I could go on and on, et cetera, et cetera. I, I would tend to think that I know more about her than any other person on the planet. But at the same time, if her and I aren't careful in our relationship, it's easy to go through the motions. Just sort of go through week in and week out with responsibility and work and kids and and just life. Luckily, that's something we focus on. We're at a really healthy place in our marriage, but we know we can get out of sync with one another if we just kind of let that happen and go through the motions. And if we're honest, the same is true with with any relationship, I think, in life. The same is true with God. You can know every Bible passage. You could have a seminary degree. You could pastor and preach at a church. All of the things. But do you actually know him? Again, no no shame or guilt, but this is the priority of Paul's prayer. One of, I think, the most gut-wrenching passages in all of the scriptures is found in Matthew 7. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy and drive out demons in your name and perform many miracles? Then I will say plainly, I never knew you. That word know means to understand or to perceive deeply. It's used in a Jewish idiom referencing sexual intimacy between a husband and wife. It's a deep level of connection that Jesus is after, that Paul is praying for. And this is what drives Paul to prayer to his knees for these people. He wants to make 100% sure that they really know him. They continue to know him deeper and deeper, better and better. Again, 
we're to know God better. 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Here is the hope that I mentioned in that, that, that Pauline triad, if you will. Hope, I think in our modern day English, is something we refer to whether or not we think it might come to be. Just, just look at these last few years that we've lived through, uh, through this pandemic. Uh, in our everyday vernacular, I think hope has been distilled down to like wishful thinking or just generic optimism when we talk about it. Like, we've hoped this world would return to normal. We've hoped uh, we could take off our masks. We've, we've hoped that lockdowns would come to an end. We hope that our economy would recover. We hope that our, our nation would come together. We've, we've collectively hoped for so many things. And hope, whether we, we think about it or not, I think must have something to attach itself to, to find itself in. And regardless of your religious or your, your spiritual background, I think all humans are, are hope-based beings. We, we set our hopes on something in the future that drives how we live in the present. And in the New Testament, we read all about the certain hope, and that's what Paul is referring to here. That's what he wants to assign our hope to, connect our hope to, to find our hope in, the certain hope being his return. Uh, illustrated another kind of goofy way, I have, all of you know, majority of you know, I have two daughters. Uh, Winnie just turned one. Zoe's two. Our house is crazy most of the time. And it's always crazy at, at dinner time. And it's a battle. Sometimes Cassie and I, we win this battle. Oftentimes we lose. And that's because toddlers' diets are like 98% pizza and 2% macaroni and cheese. There's, there's just there's no fiber happening there. But we try. We try really hard. And we try to get in some broccoli. It's mostly like veggies just covered in hummus. And we're, we're, there's small wins for us. There's small wins. Typically, we get to this point that requires a bribe. It's like Zoe... Just three more bites of broccoli. All right, one bite. Just look at the broccoli. <laughs> and then you can have a treat. And it's here that this newfound hope in Zoe, in Winnie, changes their present reality. All of a sudden, they have a future hope, a glorious inheritance, a brownie. So they might eat a couple of bites of broccoli. See, Paul's prayer is that these Ephesians would fully realize their coming hope. That certain hope that the New Testament refers to. That Christ would return one day, that his inheritance would be realized, that he would rule, bring his goodness, redeem, redeem creation, bring justice, and right the wrongs of the world. And he's praying that they would fully, fully realize this. He's like, guys, do you realize what's in front of you? Let that change your present reality. 19 through 21. We're making our way pretty quickly. In his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, in every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also the one to come. This passage kind of builds up to 
and ends in a resounding emphasis on God's power, which is the medium in which we experience the gospel in our lives. This word in Greek is pronounced kratos. It means strength or might. It can be used to describe dominion, power, uh, a mighty deed. Kratos comes out of a root word meaning to perfect or to complete. So what we're reading about here is a perfect, full, and complete power, not one that ever falls short. And the point here, I think what Paul's trying to communicate, what I want you to remember today, is that it is God's power, not our own, in which we know him better. And when we allow God's power to become our own, I believe it's his courage that becomes our courage. Instead of us trying to manufacture something in and of ourselves. To get theological for a moment, uh, in the Christian worldview, we believe in a God who is omnipotent or all-powerful, meaning he has an absolute, complete, or perfect power. And we see evidence of this throughout the scriptures. Uh, In creation, we read about how he spoke all of creation into existence out of nothing. In Genesis, we read about how nothing is too hard for him to accomplish. In Isaiah, we read that when he speaks, all of creation obeys him, In Deuteronomy, we read about how his word always prevails. And in the Gospels, how how all evil in the gates of hell will never overcome his church. These are all incredible examples of his power. Paul could have referred to any of them. But he provides laser focus into one example of God's power found here when he could have mentioned any of the above, the power that that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. And he uses an interesting uh, descriptor here, incomparably. Kelsey actually said incomparably in her prayer this morning. That's kind of cool. See, when we think about power in our modern age, we usually think about some level of comparison or degrees of power. Like that F-150 has more horsepower than a Prius, or that guy can bench press more than another person, or that computer has more processing power than another machine, or whatever example you want to use. But with omnipotence, there aren't degrees of power. There are many passages that describe God's power once again. Paul could have pointed to any of them. But what's top of mind for him was the crowning display of God's power. That perfect, omnipotent, and complete power that is shown in the resurrection of Jesus from the grave, in undoing of death that has changed the course of history. And it's not big or flashy or melodramatic per se, but it's revolutionary. And who is that power for? That revolutionary power is for you and me. It's for us. It's happening and available to us in our lives to be experienced, to be expected for those of us who follow Christ. And it's not like the power or something that resembles the power or nearly the power. The power in which God exerted when he raised Jesus from the dead, sat him in a seat above all authority in this world and the world to come, is the same power at work in you, undoing death, transforming your very being, 
building in you courage. See, knowing things about God is important. It's critically important. It's one side of the coin. But experiencing and living into this power is really what drives us to know him better. A.W. Tozer, in his book, Knowing God, writes about this. He says, Omnipotence is not a name given to the sum of all power, but an attribute of a personal God we Christians believe to be the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and all who believe in him to life eternal. The worshiping person finds this knowledge a source of wonderful strength for his inner life. His faith rises to take the great leap upward into the fellowship of him who can do whatever he wills to do, for whom nothing is too hard or difficult because he possesses power absolute. The impetus here on the back half of of chapter one in, in Ephesians is on God's power, not our own. When we tend to kind of read about this at face value, if if we're hearing uh, Paul's call to know God better, I kind of hear this call to try harder, to strive more, to do more in deepening my own knowledge of God. But what's so cool about Ephesians, this letter, is that it is a manifesto for the church to assure the church of our identity in Christ, our mission within the larger framework of God's cosmic rule. And it's this power that raised Jesus from the dead and which connects your story to his. And it's at work within you. It becomes your power. And I don't know about you, but, but that gives me courage. Knowing that I don't have to do it myself, manufacture my own power. I don't have to sound more courageous, try to be more courageous, simply act more courageous. I just need to find his power that is available to me, that is at work in me. Again, it's God's power, not ours, in which we know him better. To finish, verses 22 and 23. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The final point for today, and kind of where Paul is going, is all about the church, a collective, this new family, this group of people that is coming together under Jesus. And it's important for us to remember, final point today, that that courage and action is found in a collective experience, in a church family, much like you're sitting in today. Again, when when I think about that, that idea of courage, kind of living courageously, I usually think about myself, how I need to, to muster up my own strength to be courageous and act courageous and sound courageous. And I tend to think that's how our broader culture thinks about courage. Look at the, the self-help section in a bookstore. It's, it's huge. I think that's because we, we emphasize the self. We live in a, a radically individualistic culture. We don't tend to think in terms of the collective or the team or the family. And I think Paul wants us to get this. The trajectory of his letter specifically points to the church, which he describes as Christ's body. 
in, in a lot of Paul's writing, he refers to the church or the ecclesia as a specific gathering of believers, like think just Hope Denver. But in Ephesians, he's referring to the broader church at large, the universal church, the global church. This is a letter that was meant to be read over and over again throughout bodies of believers, like, like we're kind of reading even today. So as we close, I, I want to describe this collective to you, at least how Paul tends to describe the church, because I think that I, for one, find greater courage in my life knowing that I'm, I'm not alone. You're not alone when you're part of the church. This is how Paul describes the church, a few metaphors. First, a body, which is what we read in Ephesians 1. The church is really organic in this way. Just like a body has different parts and organs and systems that are all very different, they all depend on one another. Similarly, all of us sitting in, in this small little chapel today, we have different backgrounds, we have different strengths, we have different skills, we have different stories. And we find those in one another, we depend on one another. And in that dependency, we also depend on Jesus, who is the head of that body, for leadership, for growth, for guidance. But at the same time, we have been designed to, to need one another in this body. Second, he describes the church as a temple. Pastor Scott talked about this at length last week. Architecturally, the church is a holy temple filled with, with Christ's presence. That presence now spills over to infilling you as his empowering presence. Third, he describes the church as a commonwealth, kind of political speak. The church is a commonwealth that embodies the, the reconciliation of former, formerly um, distant and hostile ethnic groups. It broke down walls so that they could exist together in one family. Jew, Gentile, those who were once far apart are now brought together underneath Christ in this commonwealth. Fourth, a household. Uh, kind of through the lens of a, a social structure, Paul refers to the church as a household. One in which we find belonging and family and meaning and purpose in life. Because that's where we have been adopted as sons and daughters underneath God our Father. And lastly, a bride. Paul refers to the church as a bride, the bride of Christ. We are the one in which Jesus fiercely fights for, protects, sustains, and loves. Church, it's, it's in this identity in which we find courage, a courage that we can live into in action. It's by his power that we can fully experience him as we know him better, not in and of ourselves, not by ourselves, not from anything else we can find or cling on to in this world, because he is that certain hope. And courage in action is, is found in a collective. It's found in a church like this, a, a diverse group of people that have all been empowered by God. And his power is here today. His power indwells you today. And it's available as you go into a new week. So I'm thankful for all of you this morning. Thanks for being my church family. Let's pray. God, maybe it's just me, but when I, when I think about courage, I tend to think about myself. I think about my own capacities, my own weaknesses, my own abilities, 
which in a lot of ways fall flat. But your power is incomparable. You've done incredible things for centuries. You spoke this world into existence. Nothing is too hard for you. Your words will never fail. Nothing will overcome your church. But the crowning moment of your power was that power that you exerted when you raised Christ from the dead. And it's there in which all of our stories intersect yours. It's that display of power in which we can see ourselves as you see us, as, as we can see the world around us as you see the world, as we can see other people as you see them. So Lord, for my, my brothers and sisters here today, I pray that you would fill them with that power so that they would know it and feel it and experience it, and it would be that that would allow us to experience and know you better and better, deeper and deeper, Will we not try to do this alone. And Father, I'm grateful for my friends who are here today, my brothers and sisters that you have brought together from radically diverse backgrounds, different stories. We have different skills. We have different likes. There's a difference among us. But I pray that we would realize the dependency that we have on one another. And out of that, would you build in us courage that we can live into in action? So would your power fill us? Would we be grateful for the family we have here, the small, tight-knit family here at Hope Denver? And would you bless uh, my brothers and sisters as they go into a new week? Jesus, we love you. We are grateful for you. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for being here, guys. We will uh, we'll see you next Sunday at the table. Donuts, bacon, bring a friend, bring an appetite, and we'll see you then. Take care. Oh, thanks, man. Appreciate it. It's a good text. I need I needed it this week. I look I lucked out with that one. There's some more difficult ones in Ephesians, so. I like that one. Thanks, man. Thanks. Oh, still recording. Hi, Charlotte. See ya.